I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we seem to be going round and round. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife Rebecca. Hey! And today we are on Job chapter 8. So today we get to meet the second friend, Bildad the Shuhite. Again, we don't know a whole lot about Bildad, just like we didn't know a whole lot about Eliphaz. And again, we're going to see a very similar type of response to Job. Yeah, a lot of this chapter is stuff we've already heard. It is stuff we've heard, but he kind of goes deeper and he presents it with different evidence, it seems like. And he, he kind of approaches it from a different angle. But again, it's the same old, same old. You clearly did something wrong. Your yeah. kids clearly did something wrong. Right. Repent and everything I'll, will be okay. God will restore you back to where you're supposed to be once you repent, once you acknowledge your sin. Yep. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. So if you got bad things, you must be bad people. Right. And it just, it kind of feels like Joel Osteen would fit in really well with these friends. I think he might have a really hard time sitting quietly for for seven, seven days. days though. Well, true, true. I think that's more culture than it is Joel Osteen himself. But well, sure, I would probably have a hard time too. But I'm just saying, like, we can't forget that they genuinely care. Right. That they sat in mourning in silence. Well, right, and, and and people can genuinely care about you. And have terrible advice for you. And have a and just have absolutely no idea how to handle grief. Right. Or or any situation that you may be facing. Mm-hmm. And that's it's extremely common for people who really care a lot to try to speak into situations that they really don't know anything about. Yep. And their advice just comes off as uh, kind of useless. Self-righteous. Yeah. Condemning. Condemning, yeah. shaming. Yeah, and that's something that we experienced when we went through our near breakup many years yeah, absolutely. ago. Absolutely. But it's also stuff that we've, we've also, yeah. also done to others. Right. Unintentionally, of course, but we've done it too. Right, yeah. Especially in the position we're in now. Uh, people come to us with things that we're not capable of properly addressing at times. And sometimes we stick our foot in our mouth and say things that uh, we aren't quite right, that aren't super helpful. And it's just part of the process of being human. And learning and growing. Right. For the person who's giving counsel, 
do you got to give your counsel with a bit of uh, humility and recognize that the counsel you're giving may not actually fit the situation that that uh, this person is facing. And for the person facing it, if a person gives you bad counsel, it doesn't mean they're a bad friend. It just means they don't know what they're talking about. Right. And they could still be a friend, even if they don't help you through your situation. And they can still be a good friend who genuinely loves you and cares for you, even if their advice actually made it worse for you. Right. As you said before, that's one of the things we got to remember, uh, especially if you ever find yourself in this place of grief, is those people who stick by you, those people who support you through those initial stages that sit there in the moment of uh, just shock and complete and utter despair, disconnect, yeah. even. Those people truly do care for you. And when they, when it comes time that they feel that they have the voice to speak into your situation, when it doesn't help, don't count that against them and don't see them as not a friend anymore. That ends up hurting everybody in the situation. So let's go ahead and open up to Job chapter eight. Let's read it and then let's discuss this advice of Bildad. Job chapter eight. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you say these things? The words of your mouth are like a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice? Does Shaddai pervert justice? If your children sinned against him, he handed them over to their rebellion. If you would seek God and plead with Shaddai, if you are pure and upright, even now he will awaken for you and restore your righteous abode. And though your beginning was small, your future would flourish. Now ask the previous generation, consider the findings of their fathers, for we were born yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their hearts? Can papyrus grow tall without a marsh? Can reeds flourish without water? When still in bloom and uncut, it withers more quickly than other grass. Such are the ways of all who forget God. The hope of the godless perishes, whose confidence is snapped off. His trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not hold up. He is a well-watered plant in the sun, spreading its shoots over his garden. He entwines his roots around a heap of stones and looks for a place between the rocks. If he is uprooted from his place, it denies him, saying, I never saw you. Such is his joyous course, and from the earth others spring up. Surely God does not spurn the blameless or strengthen the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame. The tent of the wicked will be no more. And Bildad the Shuhai answered and said, How long are you going to speak like this? So Bildad has sat here through Job's initial lament, his utter despair. I want to die. God, please take me out. Just take me out. My life's not worth living. Then he sat through Eliphaz's initial response. But Job, you know God doesn't hurt those who are wrong. You know that 
this is how God operates. I've got this theology that's been built up. You've even given this advice to others. Right. You've given this advice to others. Take your own advice. Buck up. Let's apply this now to your own life, and you will see that everything will be okay. To which Job responded by turning to God and saying, God, is he right? Is is what Eliphaz says right? Because I feel like you've turned against me. I didn't I didn't deserve it. If, if, if there's something that I've done, show me what I've done. But I don't think I deserve this. I can't pinpoint an area of sin in my life where I deserve something like this. So Bildad hears this, and he pipes up now with his own advice. And, and basically he says, just stop talking. You know the truth. Right, he says... Stop defending yourself. Yeah, you know that you have no defense before God. He doesn't do unjust things. You know that if a person sins, he holds it against them. Your kids probably sinned, and he's holding it against them. They've reaped the whirlwind for their own sin. It may not be anything you did, Job. Look at you. You're still alive. Maybe this is something that your kids did. And you're just suffering the consequences from it because of your connection to them. Which is, again... Terrible advice. And not helpful. And not helpful. Adding to the pain. Right, because now it's not, well, Job, you've done something wrong. It's, well, your kids did something wrong. It's their fault they're dead. Oh, man. Which is horrible to hear that. Right, as a parent. Not only I don't have my kids, but now you're defaming my children. Mm -hmm. You are talking bad about my children. Who are dead? Yeah. Like, there's no recourse for me to even prove anything to you at this point. Right. That they're right and they're good. You know? But even if they weren't right and good, he offered the sacrifices just in case. Mm-hmm. You know? And he's, right. he's got that to point back to and say, but look, I covered them. I, I took care of it. Even if they did something wrong, I did what I could to help them and to, to protect them from their own sin. Bildad... He, he kind of continues on in the same vein. And he, he really points to the older generations. Mm-hmm. He, he basically says, look, we're, we may be old as people. In fact, we, we really don't know how old Job was at this point. He's old enough to have 10 kids, which in the ancient Near East means he may be about 40. But he's also mm-hmm. young enough that he's going to have twice as many in the final chapter. Yeah. So he's still kind of in the prime of his life, probably. Mm-hmm. Probably hitting middle age. And so Bildad says, you know, our lives were short, but the lives of our fathers and the generations that had come before, they were much longer than ours, and they they knew the world. We're We're so young. We are not wise. And apparently this was a common thought in that day, that good people don't suffer. Right. Well, right. And it was something that was being taught, apparently, mm-hmm. by the elders. It was something that had been decided on by humanity, or at least by these by the people in these cultures, to, I guess, kind of keep people in line. It's a very guilt-innocence mentality steeped in a honor-shame world. Uh, yeah, in a way, it is. And we are very, very guilt innocence. But we still have honor we shame. We have honor shame as well. But it is it is much more an honor shame world, at least on our side of the pond. 
So we kind of get that whole good people shouldn't have anything bad happen to them mentality. Right. And and it's a problem. It's a real problem. It is. Because we it makes us lose sight of a real character trait of God. Yes. And we don't understand it at all. And we think, well, God can't do anything bad to me because I haven't done anything bad to deserve it. And then we'll point to Job and say, well, you know, there's an exception to the rule or whatever. But right. we still have that mentality. We are still stuck in that same rut that they were stuck in. Well, right. Yeah. And and Bildad is basically saying, look at all of our forefathers. This is what we were taught by the generations that came before. If it was good enough for my parents, it's good enough for me mm-hmm. type mentality. Tradition. Right. It's that good old tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, tradition. You stand on the tradition of your forefathers and you don't dare question the tradition because it worked for them. And they're smarter than you and they were wiser than you. And they they built up this tradition to protect you and to be your your firm foundation and to, to teach you the ways of the world. You know, the tradition teaches me, eat this, don't eat that, so we don't die. Tradition tells me to build a house this way and a roof this way so it doesn't collapse on you. Tradition tells me to do all of these things. Why would they be wrong about God when they're right on so many other things? But, see, we can be right on a whole bunch of stuff. Because it's concrete. It's it's not abstract. It's not... It's not, it's founded on stuff we can see and touch and and manipulate and change and whatever. But God is so far beyond our understanding and our possibility to grasp. Right. That we can't be as certain about every single thing about God. God wants us to know him. He wants us to understand him. He wants us to pursue him and to constantly seek after him and try to grow to be closer to him. But we are human and we are feeble and we are we have tiny little brains. We cannot begin to comprehend the extent the extent that God is. Well, that's that's absolutely true. Um, and frankly, that's kind of the argument that Bildad is making to Job. I, as a person, I have just this tiny little brain. We need to look at the the greater culture, the greater understanding, the greater humanity, what they've thought of, and rest on that. Because I can't conceive it of myself. And so we can look to our forefathers we can look to our church fathers even mm. and put our trust in them because they knew they're old, they're ancient, and they thought it all out, whereas I haven't type idea. And, I mean, I, I understand that trapping. I even understand the futility that people can fall into. Like, I can't possibly really know God, so why even bother trying? Right, yeah. I, I can see that. But but God does come near to us, and he does show himself to us. And he gives us relationships so that we can 
by living in a, a marriage, understand God as a husband, by having children, understand God as a father, by having sheep, we can understand God as a shepherd by having, you know, all of these different ways that he presents himself to us. We can understand him. So there is a precedent set for going back and looking at what our fathers said and our forefathers said about it and understanding at least what their understanding was at the time. Right. So all of these things aren't inherently bad. No, not at all. But... We can also see a generational misunderstanding that's followed through the centuries that good people get good things, bad people get bad things. Well, right. And and I think the challenge that everyone in this story is trying to wrestle with is what do we do when reality challenges our tradition? Mm-hmm. When our current circumstances challenge the things that we know for a fact because our tradition, our religion, our our forefathers uh, said it was that way. It'd be like if gravity turned off tomorrow. Right. What do we oh, do? Man. What do we do with our thoughts on gravity at that point? We have to scrap everything and start over. Uh, and Job is wrestling with that idea right now because his reality I mean, gravity just turned off for him. He knew God. He knew who God was. He had this this idea of who God was, and God had always been that way to him and to everybody in previous generations. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, he's experienced something that's contrary to what he'd been taught, contrary to the very reality he had lived right up to the day before this tragedy struck. Mm-hmm. The gate is down. Right, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> many of you may not actually uh, get that <laughs> reference. It's from a book called Ender's Game, written by Orson Scott Card. It's uh, one of my it's favorite a, it's books. It's a great book. Um, but it's about a young boys who are taught in a battle school to lead fleets of ships to go fight uh, some alien threat. And they get into this this thing, and, this, and one boy, uh, Ender... It proves himself to be greater than all the others. But he, one of his initial things of brilliance is this, when you, they come into the center the of the arena. station, this arena where the two teams of boys battle each other. Uh, Gravity is literally turned off. Yeah. And they need some sort of reference point. Right. They need some sort of ability to orient, orient themselves. Right. So the gate, the enemy's gate is down. And now they're like, okay, take it down, take the ball down, whatever it is. Right. You know, it was, it, it gave them like, okay, now I know which way to go. That's down. This is right. That's left. That's up. I'm good. Right. And before that, everybody had oriented towards the floor based on what side they'd been when they walked into the room. But opposite teams could walk in on different ways or it could be spinning and, you know, while the first squad enters with the floor on one side, the second squad would enter with the floor on another side. And so communication was terrible, and they needed a new way to perceive, a new way to understand. And that was a good, that's a good insight, because that is kind of what Job needs in this situation. He needs that gate is down, the enemy gate is down type idea to just completely reorient himself on who God is. And that's the thing. I really think that God did this not just so that we would have 
this story to come back to years and years and years later, but to teach us about himself. Well, yeah. In a new way that nobody to that point really grasped at all. Right. And even when you look, read through the Torah and through basically all the way up through Isaiah, God is presented in that way. It's not until in Isaiah where God declares, you know, I, I, I bring, bring good, good and, and evil, evil, that I am, I am the one and the only, and there's no other God besides me. Yeah. Job has proved himself faithful. Right. And God says, my servant Job, I'm ready for him to take that next step and learn more about me. I'm ready for him to see me in a new light. And yeah, it's going to be painful, but he can handle it. I know he can. He can get through this. Right. And I want him to know this part of me because I've been living this kind of two-dimensional life in the in the eyes of all of the people. And they need to know that there's more to me than this little box they have me stuffed in. Yeah, that's a, possibly how it is, how, how it went. And God is like, all right, time to reveal more. Uh, it's that idea of progressive revelation, that God yeah. reveals parts of himself and progressively reveals more and more and more about himself. But we've had that completely disorienting, like, oh, yeah. floundering moments. And a lot of people who come into the Torah-observant, pronomian Christian mentality say they they have been very disoriented as well. Like, I had to just kind of start over. Right. And I think that's kind of where we all can can sympathize with Job on that whole floundering mm, issue right. because we realized that we had a reset as well. Ours wasn't, typically speaking, wasn't as um, volatile as his, but it is definitely something that shakes you. Yeah, and so Bildad, in, in order to reinforce his point, he points to a proverb. He kind of points to the world around him. Mm -hmm. And he says, look at the papyrus over there. Does a papyrus grow without a marsh or a reed thrive without water? And yet, while it is still green, not cut down, without water or a marsh, it dries out before any other plant. So he's, he's pointing to this thing that he can see to kind of inform his own theology. Mm-hmm. Here's a plant that we can look at and we can see that it needs its source of water in order to survive. And yet if that water, if that source of life is withdrawn, it dries up quickly. Mm -hmm. And in a way he's saying, you're like this, Job. You're like this reed where God has withdrawn his water from you because somebody deserved it, whether it was you or your children. And now you're this dried up reed. Yeah, such are the ways of all who forget God. Right. In a, in a way, he's kind of soft accusing Job of forgetting God, forgetting who God is. In his own defense of himself, saying, I don't know what I've done wrong. God is hurting me. He's torturing me. He's, he's, he's he brought me to this, this terrible, terrible place. Bildad's saying, you're forgetting God. 
You're forgetting who you are. You're forgetting that source of life. But Job's just spent several chapters accusing God. Yeah. And wallowing, if you will, in self-pity. And maybe Bildad feels that he has he has to stand up for God. Yeah. You're you're not in the right place. You're accusing God. Right. God God is righteous. God is good. God is just. How can you sit there and accuse him? Right. How how can you call him that unsteady friend that has betrayed you? You're the one who's forgotten God and you're dried up because of it. Yeah, it, he's again victim blaming. Victim blaming, but it's an easy trap to fall into. Oh yeah. When you think that you somehow have to defend God. And almost religiously so, if you will, because it's like if I don't defend God, then I by keeping my mouth shut on these things, I am agreeing by omission. Right, yeah. And I can't do that. Yeah. So, another tip for those who are trying to help others through grief, through tragedy, through trauma, allow them to voice their pain without feeling that need to defend God. We can look all through the Psalms, we can look through Job, we can look through several other places in Scripture where people cry out to God in absolute pain, in horror, in feeling hurt and unjustly persecuted. And I'll tell you what, God can take it. Yeah. He can take your heart. Right. Right. He can take your accusations, especially when you're in a place like Job is where he's lost everything. He can take it. He can, he knows your pain. He knows the hurt. And so if you're helping someone through a situation like this, when they start questioning God, questioning his goodness, questioning his righteousness, it does no good to try to correct this person on their theology. It doesn't do any good to say, no, 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 you've got God all wrong. How dare you? How dare you? question God in this moment. He is righteous and just and good, and you're just this lonely little mortal who has no wisdom whatsoever, and you just don't understand. It, it truly doesn't meet a person where they're at in their questioning, in their pain, in their hurt, in their sorrow, in their confusion even with the world around them to call them out and correct their theology in that moment. So then he goes on to talk about, he continues on with these Proverbs, the hope of the infidel or the hope of the, uh, hope of the defiled one, verse 13. So the hope of the defiled one will perish. His refuge is cut off and his trust is in a spider's web. Hmm. His home, the thing that he want, that he loves, he'll put his hand against it and it doesn't, won't last. It'll fall over. Just like a spider's web. All things pass away. Everything is temporal. Don't forget that you're just, you're only mortal. And so are all your kids and all your things. They all pass away. And if your hope is in those things, then 
you're going to be left stranded and floundering when tragedy comes. And frankly, that's a profound truth. That is a profound truth. Mm -hmm. However, it is completely misapplied in this circumstance. Because the, the truth is, you can't trust in your spouse and your kids and your home and your parents and your money and your car and whatever. Because it, it is temporal. It, it will pass away. It will all go away at some point. You'll go away at some point and you'll leave others. Job isn't disputing that. He's not arguing against that fact. He's suffering grief and loss and pain. He didn't have his hope in his children. Mm-hmm. His hope was in God. Right. Job. So Bildad's completely misapplying that. He's seeing Job's grief and his despair at, at the loss, that giant hole that's been just ripped out of Job's heart, out of his life. He's seeing it as Job has, oh, well, you put your trust in those things. And when they're gone, suddenly you're left with, with nothing. Mm-hmm. But Job doesn't have nothing. He still has God. He doesn't trust God, but he still has God. He doesn't understand God, but he still has God. And he refused in chapter 2 to curse God. He wouldn't do it. Right. So his hope is still in God, but having your hope in God and recognizing everything is temporal isn't going to stop grief when things go away. It's not going to stop frustration. It's not going to stop hurt. It's not going to stop the pain. Yeah, and so absolutely. We, and so that's a very terrible place to go for a person who is in grief. Just remember, it's all temporal. It's all going to pass away. Well, thanks a lot. I knew that. He's telling Job things he knew, but he's misapplying a profound truth. And that is super common mm-hmm. when it comes to counseling, is misapplying profound truths. And we have to be very careful against doing things like that and rather meeting a person in their pain rather than trying to argue their way out of it. Then he comes to verse 21. And he says basically the same things that we have said so far this whole entire time, eight chapters, is what can you say to someone who is hurting? He doesn't, he doesn't do the, hey, this sucks right now. This is terrible right now. I know it hurts right now. But he does say, he will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. You will smile again. Right. But, again, he's doing it in the wrong way. Well, he, he's, he's equating this, you will smile again, with the theology that we've already established is incorrect. Right. He's basically saying, Job, you need to get back to your old-time religion, come back to the traditions, understand if somebody did something wrong, repent, find where it is, fix yourself, Job, and then God will reward you and you will laugh again. Yeah. Coming to the same conclusion through different means is completely unhelpful. When you use that with someone who's going through pain, where you will smile again, that the pain is true, it's real, it's deep, it's it's this abyss inside of you, but it will dull and you will find joy again in your life. It's not the same as, well, you need to find where you did wrong. wrong. You need to repent 
and then you'll find joy again. Right. You need to fix you, and then you'll find joy again. And then that, that's really what Bildad is kind of saying here. He's yeah. saying, fix yeah. yourself. Get back into, stop accusing God. Stop thinking that God's doing something unrighteous or unjust to you. Stop wallowing Stop in wallowing it. in your, in this pain. Somebody deserved it. It's only right and just that they got it. And figure out what it is. Make amends for it. And God will restore you. Yeah, and then he goes on, like, those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Like, all your enemies will be gone, and those right. who are against you will be shamed, and right. it's, he's God's going to bless you. It's still prosperity He's still preaching gospel. that prosperity gospel. Yeah. And that's the difference between what he's saying here and what we've been saying all along, is you're not guaranteed to have everything go your way. Right. Even if you do repent, even if you do, God doesn't owe you that. That's not how he works. We read in many places that he raises up the wicked for the, for certain purposes. And so he's preaching this prosperity gospel that just doesn't fly. But what we're, the, the advice that we give of trying just, he'll smile again. It, you know, you will find joy again in your life. It, everything looks dark now. It's not prosperity. You're not saying everything's going to go your way or that you're going to have a dozen kids or that no, everything you lost will be replaced. It's just giving hope. It's Yeah, it's, it's planting that seed of hope that things will turn around, that things will look brighter again someday. And and that's the difference, is, is giving a seed of hope rather than giving... Promising a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Promising... Promising, promising a mountaintop, <laughs> yeah. Promising a mountaintop for from now on, right? Um, yeah. So this is a actually a short chapter, but uh, there's one thing I wanted to go back to that that proverb that Bill that gave of the the reed planted by the water. Again, this seems like an echo from Psalm Psalm one. Mm-hmm. The the uh, the righteous man like will breathe like a tree planted by streams of water, and his fruit will not wither. Uh, and all that he and, does, it'll prosper. Right. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff, which is blown by the wind. Exactly. They will not stand in judgment. Right. So yeah. so this this entire bit of advice, it sounds very much like Psalm 1. And even the the imagery of the being planted by streams of water and not having the water taken away, having deep roots and having the the strength to to suck up the the life force from God. Mm-hmm. And we've got to remember, we've got to recognize that Psalm one can be true, while Job is also true. Mm-hmm. These these two things are not at odds with each other. Because Job is a very limited time frame of a single person's existence as they're struggling with tragedy and with loss. Whereas Psalm 1 is a general statement for all mankind. And they're not talking about the same thing. What's being promised in Job is you'll have goods, you'll have money, you'll have kids, everything will go right, all your enemies will go away. And... Psalms is talking about the grander scheme of things. Psalms is talking about the principle. Job is trying to apply a broad principle 
to a specific event. Right. Well, and that's what Bildad and Elphaz and all of the others are doing. Right. Is as, And this broad principle, it goes far beyond our corporeal existence, corporeal existence. Because standing in judgment in Psalms, yeah, it can t- speak of standing in judgment in a human justice system, a uh, court system. But it also speaks of standing before God's throne of judgment, when your life is over and you stand before him in judgment. It's not talking about everything that goes wrong in your life being an act of God's judgment, which is how Bildad and Eliphaz and, and even Job himself would probably steep bad actions or bad bad mm-hmm. outcomes, right. is that they are, in fact, a decree from on high that you have done something evil, and so now there is this punishment that goes along with it. And so we got to really be able to parse that out, that it's not, they're not really talking about the same thing. But just like last week where we saw echoes of Psalms, again, this week we see an echo of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And that's super important to see, because this time there is that contrast going on. Just as there was last week. All of the things we read last week, Job was flipping them on their head and using them as accusations. And this week we're seeing a very similar thing. Mm-hmm. So, And so ends the response of Bildad, the Shuchait. So just remember, as you go through life, whether it's whether you experience grief, tragedy, or the greatest of joys, that your life source and your foundation can't be in your tradition. And it can't be in what you've always been taught. And that sometimes, even when you're going through really hard stuff, it might be so that you can learn a little bit more about who God really is. Right. So, as you go through life and all that you do, seek life. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.